All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we would really love a cool breeze. <laughs> and in addition to that, Father, we would love the breeze of your Holy Spirit to come and to take words on a page and to make them real for us. We need you to help us, Father God. We need your grace to, to be poured out in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and for you to grant us the eyes that we need to see and the ears that we need to hear to embrace your glory in the scriptures. And so we ask for that right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, by the way, there is cold beverages. I should have mentioned this at the beginning. And ice cubes and ice pops. And so do not, do not hesitate at all at any point in time to go back there and grab a handful of that stuff. Uh, completely understand and recognize that that's a necessity right now. <laughs> so today we're continuing a series uh, that we've entitled, That They May Be One. This is a series we began last week. It's rooted in a portion of Jesus' prayer in John 17, uh, where he prays for all believers, and he prays for the church. John 17 is called the High Priestly Prayer, and if you remember last week, one of the dominant focuses of that prayer was that the church would be one. In fact, in that prayer, Jesus prays for that specific thing three times, that they may be one, he says. And so as we explore what it means for the church to be one, for us to be united as a body this summer, and God willing, we'll be doing that through, through the rest of July, um, we're now turning to a central aspect of unity in the church, and that aspect is called the sacraments. The sacraments uh, I'm referring to are baptism and the Lord's Supper, which you may call communion. These two realities that we practice in the church and they're practices that were instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they are of, a, of great importance because what they do is, as uh, hopefully we'll see today from the scriptures, they show us what the church is, truly what the church is, and what we are as individual Christians and disciples of Jesus. And in both of these, we come face to face with the reality of the unity of the body of Christ. And so they are of, of massive and critical importance. And so to begin exploring these, I want to start with a story from the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. And uh, what I'd like you to do as I set the table for this story is, is I want to invite you into this text. I don't want you to read, and, and really this goes for everything we read today, I don't want you to read as a bystander. I want you to come into the text, and I want you to use your God-given imagination to put yourself there. And I'll tell you why later on. But to be part of the story we're about to look at here. So as uh, to set the table on this, Matthew 26, 26, I want you to imagine right now that you are one of Jesus' disciples. I want you to imagine that you're one of the 11, 12 disciples, 12, 11 true disciples, one uh, betrayer, um, but imagine that you're all of those except for Judas, like one of the disciples, um, and you've been walking with Jesus, this man, for three years. He is your rabbi. 
He is your master. And he is your friend. And you've been with this man long enough to know that he's actually the Messiah. I mean, you believe it. You, you believe that he is the Savior. He is the Christ. And he has done some amazing things in your presence. He's healed people. He has done miracles and signs one after another. And the way he teaches, nobody speaks like this man. You know there's something different about him. He's spoken about things so incredible, you've never heard of them, and they just, they grip you, and they convince you that he is who he says he is. But he's also said things that make you feel extremely uncomfortable. He said things to you that you feel somewhere inside of you are wrong. Like he said that he's going to suffer. He told you that he was going to die. And this does not make sense with you. For someone who's been waiting for this Messiah for years, and really your people have been waiting for centuries for this one to come, but he's repeatedly told you, this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer horribly. And then I'm going to be executed. And he's told you this repeatedly in the midst of all these signs and pictures and words that have convinced you he's the Christ. And so this doesn't make sense. You don't know how to, you know how to connect what he's saying about his suffering to everything else. How could the Christ, the one who's come to save us from dying, be meant to suffer and die himself? And so then comes the night that we're going to look at in this text. You're in Jerusalem. You're in an upper room with Jesus. The religious leaders are, are looking for your rabbi to silence him. They're done with him. So it's tense. It's also Passover night. Passover night is a celebration that your people have, have conducted for hundreds of years. Passover is the Jewish feast where we remember as disciples what Jesus did or what God did when he delivered us from the people uh, or from the Egyptians out of slavery and bondage through this meal that is called Passover, through the, the killing of a, a spotless lamb. Everyone knows this story. If you're, if you're, I mean, we do, but them, they lived this story. This was their life. This was their history. There were nine plagues. We looked at it just a few weeks ago. Every plague caused the Pharaoh to refuse to let the people go. And so God says, I'm going to send a 10th plague. And after this one, he'll let you go. That 10th plague, of course, is the killing of every firstborn throughout all of Egypt. The only way outside of that plague was if you had partaken in the Passover meal. Was if, he, if you had taken the blood of that spotless lamb and put it on your doorpost and the lintel of your home. And, and if you did that, instead of striking your house and taking out the firstborn in your home, God would pass over your home in great mercy and not cast his judgment, his wrath upon your house. And so this is the meal that you're celebrating with Jesus on this night. Put yourself there. Imagine you are eating with him at table. He's right across from you. You can see the face of Jesus. And he stops during the middle of dinner, during the middle of the Passover supper, and he looks right at you and the other disciples, and what happens in Matthew 26 happens to you. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus 
took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He gave it to you. You're there. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So imagine you were there with Jesus and he said these things to you. I mean, he's talked like this before. He talks about food often in such a way where it makes you think that all food in the world actually mainly exists to point to him, to point to our need for him. So this is not new. He tells you that the bread is his body. Take it, eat it. He tells you the cup, which is filled with the fruit of the vine, is actually his blood of the covenant. He tells you to drink it. He says that it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And if we were in Luke 22, we would notice right here, Jesus says that you are going to need to practice this meal in the days to come to remind yourselves of me and what I've told you. He tells them specifically, do this in remembrance of me. And then here in Matthew 26, he says something shocking. He says that he will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day. Until what day, Jesus? What day are you talking about? He says, until that day when he drinks it new with you in the kingdom of his Father. So again, if you read between the lines and you're there at the meal, you don't like some of the things you're saying here. Or he's saying, some of them feel wrong. He's saying, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, I will not drink this cup again with you until the day. In other words, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. And I'm going to not be here much longer. And so it's vital that you hear what I say. Time is short. And in a few hours... If you're one of the disciples, you see exactly how short time was. Jesus in the garden is suddenly arrested. Then he goes through a quick series of trials where he is found to be innocent on every account. And then he is beaten and battered, horribly disfigured, so that you can hardly recognize him according to Isaiah 53. And then he is stripped of his clothing, his dignity. He's forced to carry his own cross outside the city of Jerusalem to a place that is called the Skull, Golgotha. And there he will be nailed to that cross and he will be lifted up into the air until he suffocates under the weight of his own body. And this is what happened after dinner to Jesus. So what Jesus was telling them was true. His time was short. He was going to suffer. He was going to die. Now, if you had been there, what would you have done? Like, how would you, would have, how would you have responded to that? Remember, for these men, Jesus was everything to them. Everything. They'd given up everything they got. 
and now their rabbi is dead and gone. How would you have grappled with that? Would you have put your mind back towards the things he said during the supper? Would you, would you have considered the promises that he had made throughout his ministry to you? Or would you be devastated? Would you be paralyzed? Would you be so fearful that you could not even go out of your home? That's precisely how the disciples responded. Everything that they knew and believed in those last three years that they had walked with this man had suddenly, in one night, imploded. Jesus, this man that they revered, that they embraced, that they trusted, this man that they adored and loved, was gone, presumably forever. Never to come back. But you know the story. You know that it doesn't stay this way. In three days, something impossible happens. Jesus is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And he comes to his disciples very much alive in ways that no one in the history of the world had ever been before. And he's telling them this was always the plan. This was always the plan. That his death, he says, was the plan of God, just as he had told them during the supper. It was God's plan for the forgiveness of their sins through the death of the one true Passover lamb, Christ. And for those with eyes to see, it becomes clear. I mean, at the Passover meal, you eat the Passover lamb. You take the blood of the Passover lamb, you put it on the doorpost to to protect you from judgment. And he had told you specifically, this was the covenant in my blood. Not, Not an old covenant, not the old covenant, but a new covenant. And by partaking in it, he is inviting them into the reality of knowing forgiveness for their sins not being under the judgment of God. Forgiveness which comes through his blood alone. In other words, Jesus was telling them in this Passover meal, I'm going to die for you. And eating this meal with me is a sign pointing to the reality that forgiveness of sins is through Jesus Christ alone. He alone is the Passover meal. And Jesus told his disciples in that moment, You need to repeat this meal in remembrance of me to remind them who Jesus was and what he had done for them through this event. And then in Matthew 28, 40 days after this, there's another encounter with Jesus that is very critical for us to see. Jesus takes his disciples up onto this mountain and he ascends into heaven before them, promising them, I'm going to return for you one day. I'm going to return for everyone who puts their faith in me. But before he does that, before he ascends into heaven, he says something that is massive. He gives them a command. And again, I want you to put yourself there. Be in that scene on the mountain with Jesus. And imagine, we were given our imaginations by God for specifically this, I think. Imagine that he's speaking directly to you when he says these things. 
Matthew 28, starting with verse 16, says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to them, and again, you're here, he's talking to you. He said to them, All authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in that moment, he ascends into the heavens. And this command is the last thing that he tells you. He says, all authority is mine. I have it. There's not a single thing in the entire cosmos that does not belong under my authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, tell these people across this planet about me. Tell them the truth about who Christ really was. His life, his death, his resurrection, and show them that it is only through Jesus that we can be forgiven of sins. Him alone. This is what we call the gospel, the good news. That by trusting and embracing Christ and his work on the cross through faith, we are forgiven of every single sin you've ever committed. And in that moment, you become a disciple. You become a disciple, a Christian. And he says that his disciples are marked decisively by the act of baptism. He says they're to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the mark of being a disciple of Jesus. And therefore, if, if someone's trusted in his work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, they must be baptized. And to be baptized, according to the Bible, is to be immersed or lowered into the water. That's the definition of the gr Greek word, the noun baptisma, and the, the verb baptizo is to be immersed, to be dipped, to, to be lowered into. That, and that's, if you read through the New Testament, you see they baptize in places where there's a lot of water. You see that they're lowered down into the water and picked back up. So there's this visual element inside the New Testament. So this is what that word means. To be baptized is to be lowered into the water, is to be immersed. And as you're immersed, you are joined into the name that you are baptized by. So here's Jesus saying that you need to be baptized by the name of the Father, the, uh, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice he doesn't say names. He says name, singular. And the reason he says name, singular, is because they have one name. They are, all of them, God. So the act of baptism shows the believer has been joined to the one true God. The, God the, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all one name. And so in the wake of Jesus' ascension, we as disciples of Jesus are, are left with really two practices that we are to persist in through the ages. One of them is baptism, and the other is the Lord's Supper. And they came to be known as sacraments over time. And the reason I, I asked you earlier to put yourself in these positions is because I want you to know that if you're a Christian right now, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, 
you're a disciple of Jesus, and therefore these two sacraments are for you. They're yours. Jesus was telling you through this book to do these things. And so these two practices, I mean, even before the church was, was a thing, were woven into the DNA of what would become the church. And they are, as Jesus commanded, for us to make and baptize disciples and then for us to partake in the Lord's Supper. And so the question we should ask here when we engage the sacraments is why? Why do these things? Um, obviously, we do them because Jesus commanded them. But what is the meaning underneath them? He's not having us do something for no reason at all. He has a reason for us, and that is the focus of the rest of our time today. What is it that these two sacraments, what are they, what are they to mean to the Christian, to the disciple of Jesus, and why are they so critical to the church that Jesus instituted them before there was even a church? And really, what does that have to say about us being one? What does it have to do with Jesus' prayer that they may all be one? So let's start with baptism. Baptism is explained throughout the New Testament in a variety of different ways. Um, The most detailed and clear picture um, is probably Colossians 2. And so we're going to turn to that right now. Colossians 2, starting with verse 11. Colossians 2 is, is... glorious in its engagement of baptism because it doesn't just explain about who should participate in baptism and who shouldn't and why we do it, but it tells us how baptism relates to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the single most important aspect of baptism. And so here's Colossians 2, verse 11 through 13. Sorry. Paul says, in him also, that is in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So this is Paul's explanation of baptism. And it may, you may be like, Jeremy, the word baptism only appears in there once. How is this his explanation of baptism? Well, he begins here saying that, that in Christ we have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He calls it the circumcision of Christ. And that, again, is a very strange way to begin talking about the sacrament of baptism. Paul here isn't talking about the physical act of circumcision that marked God's people in, uh, with the nation of Israel in the earlier ages, in the, in, the, in the original covenant. But this is rather a spiritual circumcision, as we're going to see, that is done by God alone. And it's done not to the physical body, it is done to the heart of the person who is the recipient. The, the circumcision here is God removing the body of the flesh, which, which is the dominion of sin over one's life. It is this massive change of 
heart. It's repentance and faith. It's, it's shifting away from being a slave to sin to being a slave to righteousness and to God. doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that God steps in and decisively changes us. Paul says that in verse 13, we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. So this is what we were. We were slaves to sin. We were bound underneath the dominion of affections that took us away from God and not toward God. And then God stepped in and everything changed. So before we even get to baptism in this text, Paul is presenting this reality that there is a radical change that happens in a person's life, a deeply, I mean a profoundly deep, spiritual change that is brought on by the hand of God. But that change leads to something because he says here, having been buried with Christ in baptism. So that reality, that change leads to the act of baptism. And he describes the act of baptism here by linking it, our baptism, to the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Buried with Christ in baptism. But it's not just his burial. Listen to how Paul continues. He says, in which, so in baptism, you were raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. So this is a big deal. Paul is saying here that when you first believed, when faith first appeared in your soul, a receiving of, an embracing of Jesus, when that first happened, that was actually a work of the living God. That wasn't something you created. It wasn't something you manufactured. It wasn't something that you brought about. It was God working in you to bring you to faith. He changed you, he says here, from death to life. And all of it was connected to and rooted in the real death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in history which is why he goes on to say in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. This is Paul unpacking why we do baptisms. We do baptisms because when someone hears the gospel and when someone believes in that gospel and in Christ Jesus, Something radical has happened in that person. It's not simply a change of opinion. There is something that happened in the very deepest part of their being. They are no longer dominated by sin. They're no longer guilty before God. They've been forgiven of every single sin and trespass in their lives. And they have been at the same time made alive. And baptism is a physical experience physical act of obedience that we do that pictures this and draws us into the realness of it. We are buried with Christ into the water, which represents our deadness, and we are raised with Christ through faith, which which represents our new life. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans 6. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him, with Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Paul's saying that baptism displays this union that we now have with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, in his burial and in his new life. And so baptism is this vivid picture of something that God has done in us. God does it inside of us. And when we come to believe in Christ, this reality's happened. And baptism is the action that we do in response to that. It's rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ experienced by us in our coming to faith in Christ. First Peter makes this even more clear saying that baptism doesn't clean away our sin like water cleans away dirt from the body. It's not like that, he says. He says baptism itself is only a response to God's work in us. It, it is us making an appeal to God for a clean and new conscience. And that appeal is only possible if you are alive. It is not a, possi- it is not a possibility for you to, to be dead in sin and trespasses and to make that appeal. And so God works in our hearts to bring us to life, to give us a desire to have a clean conscience before him. That's what Peter's talking about. So for everyone who hasn't been baptized yet or may even just have questions about what baptism was, I mean, I was baptized at a very young age. I think it was young. Um, And my understanding of baptism was not where it should have been when I was baptized. And I think a lot of us may be in that place or maybe... uh, we haven't been baptized yet because specifically we don't understand. And we're trying to figure out what that, what that is, what it means. Hopefully this, is, this, this makes it clear for you. So listen closely. When you come to faith in Jesus, God has done more in you than simply convince you that the Bible is true and the gospel is true. God has taken your soul up into his arms, which was dead in sin, captive to Satan, and he has made you alive just like he took his dead son and by the Holy Spirit, by his glory, raised Jesus up to life. That's what's happened inside of you. And baptism is an action we take to show a vivid picture, a real experiential picture of just how, exa- how God saved you, how he went about saving you. It is an act that shows what already happened in your heart. And therefore, it marks the creation of a disciple. But baptism is all of those things, but it's something else. And this is really important before we move over to the Lord's Supper. Baptism also points to who we are as one. In Galatians 3.26, listen to what Paul says here. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So that's you right now. If you believe in Jesus right now, you are a, a son or daughter of God. And he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You belong to him. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying here. One second here. Sorry. Paul's saying here that in Jesus' death and resurrection, we are also joined to each other. We are all children of God through faith. And therefore, as we are joined into this family as children of God, we have now become one in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. 
that they may be one. And it happens through this miracle which baptism displays. Should be good. I'm nervous that things are going to start flying around here. But I'm grateful for the wind. Grateful for the wind. Thank you, Jesus. Um, where was I? All right, so, uh, so this miracle that baptism displays. Baptism is a picture of a reality that happened inside of you. So know that if you're just asking questions about what baptism is. By being buried with Christ under the water and raised with Christ to new life, we are showing what God did in us. And we are joined to the body of Christ. Now, this does not mean that our unbaptized children, I think a lot of us do have unbaptized children in our lives, um, that doesn't mean that they're not a part of the church in a real meaningful way. They are part of the church in, in a meaningful way. And um, they, they have a place in our family, they have a place in our church as being children of believers, and that's real and true. If they belong to you, they do belong to the church, but not in the same way that Paul's describing in Galatians 3. When someone truly understands the gospel and comes to faith in Christ Jesus, they are joined to Christ and to the body of Christ in a way far deeper than participation, far deeper than, 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 than being part of the fellowship by union of or by merit of biology. Baptism is this visible experiential sign that shows the miracle that God did in your heart to bring you to faith and to raise them from death to life. And it marks the beginning of a disciple's life. That doesn't mean that your, your kids won't go to heaven if they die. That's another sermon for another time. Um, but that does mean that the act of baptism is a real threshold to bring you into a deeper fellowship with the body. And so this is baptism. Baptism is a, a visible and experiential sign that shows a miracle when God raised you from death to life. So what is the Lord's Supper? This is the second element. This is going to be shorter. Um, if baptism is a visible and experiential sign of what God did in us at the moment when we became believers, what is this perpetual act of participating in the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper is, a, is a, an experiential and a visible sign of what happened to Jesus Christ and what happened to Christ on your behalf, for your sake. It's the act of remembering Jesus. Just like baptism doesn't save you, it's an act that echoes a reality that happened inside of you, so does the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, is an act of remembering something. Doing the Lord's Supper does not save you. And one of the reasons we know this is true is because Judas was at the table when Jesus conducted the Lord's Supper. And Judas was not benefited at all by the Lord's Supper. And so it is only a physical action that is secondary to the recognition and embracing of what it means, what it actually means. So what does the Lord's Supper mean? Well, Paul is very helpful again. In 1 Corinthians 11, he tells us exactly what the Lord's Supper means. In this passage, while addressing some of the ways that um, this church, the Corinthian church, had been abusing this sacrament in particular, Paul unpacks with really clear terms what exactly Jesus meant when he told his, his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Here's 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 23. 
Paul says, For I received from the Lord also, from, from the Lord, what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new cup in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So right there is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't get any clearer than that. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you on the cross. Remember what I, I, remember what, why I did it for you. Remember all the things that I told you about this reality. If you recall in, in Matthew, Jesus told them specifically why he did what he did on the cross. He said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The purpose of the cross, which is seen and experienced in the, the, the elements of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the purpose of the cross was to establish a covenant that would allow our sins to be forgiven. Jesus told his disciples, receive this bread as you would receive my body. It's my body. Take it. Eat it. Receive this cup as you would receive my blood. So as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are, we are embracing Jesus as the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We are embracing him as our Lord and Savior. We are, we are remembering our union with Christ who died on our behalf, just like the spotless Passover lamb died for the people of Israel. And our partaking in the Lord's Supper recalls and receives all that Christ did for us on that cross, all that his death accomplished for us. Paul says exactly this in the chapter just before this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, are one body, he says, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, I want to make something really clear. Jesus is not physically present in the elements. I know there's different theological views on this. He is not physically present in the elements. He doesn't need to be because he's already told us, I will be with you always. And it doesn't get more real than that promise that he made. You can't make it more present than him saying, I am physically with you at all times. He is not physically present in the elements, nor is he re-sacrificed again and again every time we do this. Hebrews tells us clearly, he was the sacrifice once and for all. Paul tells us why we do this. We do this to remember Christ. Remember Christ. Not to take a piece of him, but to remember him through this act that he's established. These are all signs of our Union with Christ, participating with the body is remembering what he has done for us. And Paul says that it doesn't just remind us of what he's done. It reminds us that we are one. We are one together. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we show that we are one body because the only ones who are to participate in the Lord's Supper are those who are part of the body of Christ. Those who 
understand and believe in the gospel, those are the ones who can participate in this, such that when they partake in the elements during the Lord's Supper, they're not just doing like a religious ritual that their parents are doing. They're not just doing a religious act or, or just following the footsteps of the person in front of us. They are embracing who they truly are already in Christ Jesus. They are remembering the sacrifice that was made for them on the cross, just like the Passover lamb. And in their hearts, like when you take the Lord's Supper, and you may or may not do this already, when you take the Lord's Supper, we should be embracing that sacrifice as we take the elements and understanding what it means for our souls eternally. So the Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers, nor is it for those who view it lightly. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is rebuking, like I told you earlier, the church because they handled it, they handled the Lord's Supper like it was a casual meal. Some people were getting drunk. Other people were going without any food at all. It was just a normal casual activity. They had zero understanding of the weight of what was going on. And Paul tells them, you want to know why some of you are sick? Do you want to know why some of you have died? It's because of this. The Lord is disciplining you. And it's a haunting statement that tells us that the Lord's Supper is not a game. It's not something we do for recreation or fun. And, and, and therefore, we should recognize that we can't do this in a casual way. Someone who, who comes to the table, Paul says, should examine the body and search the heart and the mind and the soul to understand what is going on here and where I fit in the equation. This is what God truly did for me. To do anything else, to treat it casually, is to invite the judgment of God, the discipline of God. This is why some Corinthian believers had died. And therefore, we should practice this with caution, not only in how we partake the Lord's Supper, but in who we offer it. We should understand that we need to take it seriously and understand it soberly. Um, because to take it lightly is not just wrong, it is dangerous. So the Lord's Supper is this profoundly glorious sacrament to be embraced and received by those who understand it, who, who, who recognize it, who sincerely come to it with an understanding of what the gospel is and have put their faith in Jesus. And we partake in it for one reason. We do this to remember the Lord's death and to proclaim that same death until he comes. This is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It is a visible and experiential sign, I've used those words on baptism, I'm using them here intentionally, of what Christ has done. And we are to do this until he returns. And here's the glorious thing that the Lord's Supper points to. When he does return, he will at last keep his promise that he made 2,000 years ago in Matthew 26. Do you remember the promise that he made at the Passover meal? I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the promise. In other words, I'm going to wait to drink this until you're with me. I'm going to wait until that day. And on that day, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you into the fullness of my Father's kingdom in a way that you've never experienced. And then, and only then, will I drink the fruit of the vine with you. And when we drink it then, he's telling us, when we drink it then, we will drink it 
new. That's how we're going to do this. We're going to drink it new. What does he mean by that? Drink it new. Well, he's referring to the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of history. He's referring to the time when Christ finally brings his people home to enjoy him forever. When the scriptures tell us that all things will be made new, including this feast, including this fruit of the vine. Revelation 19.9 has this scene where an angel comes to John (laughs) and says to him, I want you to write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The angel then immediately says right after this, these, the words I just told you, are the true words of God. And we can pass over that text really easily. But what he's saying here is that there is a blessing that is immeasurable, that you cannot fathom, that you cannot understand, and it is for only those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who who have put their faith in Christ Jesus, baptized into the church, and those who who are coming to Christ and understanding who he is and receiving him through the acts of the sacrament of the Lord's of Supper. Those people, the people who are part of the church, the people who've trusted in Jesus are, are recipients of this blessing who are invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the eternal blessing that is promised by God. God himself promises this. These are his true words. And so part of the Lord's Supper Part of our anticipation of what it is is that we will be with Jesus at this feast on the final day. So imagine yourself again sitting at a table and you're sitting across from him, Christ, Jesus. Except recognize that this isn't your imagination forever. One day, this is going to happen. It'll be more real than anything you experience in this life for certain. Recognize the reality of what's going on in this text and recognize that that is going to be a reality that you will experience, that you will taste, that you will feel and know. Everything in your life comes to a culmination in this event. All of it has led to this blessing that God promised for you where you are united to the very one your soul was made for. So the sacraments are not trivial. They are not unimportant. They are essential to our understanding not only of the cross, not only what happened to us at the moment when we trusted in Christ, but that we are truly one. We are one body together. The sacraments exist to remind us of what God has done for us in Christ. And they exist to show us the unity we have with one another. And they point to this great, massive reality that one day we will be at a feast with Christ Jesus that will last for all eternity. In the presence of our Savior, one final, ultimate, culminating communion to which all the others throughout our lives have pointed to. That's what these sacraments are for. Now, normally at this time, I would ask you to prepare for the Lord's Supper 
in the first, or to, to take the Lord's Supper in the first song. We have single serve communion cups at the table. And I would tell you during the first song, take it, recognize what we talked about today. And uh, that's how we would normally close a message. But that's not how we're going to do it today. I'm going to ask that you hold on to the elements. And in between the first and second song, <laughs> I forgot to talk to Mackenzie about this earlier. Um, in between the first and second song, I'm going to come back up and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're probably going to do it different like this from now on. But we're definitely going to do it different today. Um, so let's pray. Father God, uh, the reality of the Lord's Supper and the reality of baptism, these gifts that you've given your people are, are beyond my ability and my capacity to really, truly unpack and explain and articulate. And I feel the, the limitations of my flesh in just even approaching this subject. And therefore, I ask that if there was anything in error that I said, that it be removed from our hearts and our minds. But everything that's consistent with the reality of your word, Father, would it be pressed deep into our souls? And would you give us a, a taste for, a hunger for, the final feast when we, are in, when we are united with the one that we were baptized into, Christ Jesus our Lord, and we drink and we eat it new with you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.